ladies' room. We need to talk. Use the ladies' room! Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Ladies' Room Deadspin Sports Podcast. I am your host, Julie DeCaro of Deadspin. She is Jane McManus, who also writes for Deadspin and who is a professor at Marist College. We are excited to be bringing this podcast to you guys in the middle of a pandemic, which is how I always like to start my podcasts off, Jane. Listen, we're all doing what we can. We're working from home. We're talking into Zoom. It's a way of life for us all now. So I've got two things, two issues I want to address with you. We might as well start with Zoom because that's the first one. So we're recording this late at night. I have had a day. So I look like a homeless person right now. Um, you, I feel like you always look great, but I attribute this also to the difference in having straight hair and having curly hair. Because <laughs> once curly hair hits the like, the like I've, I'm done, there's nothing you can do to like pull it back in. Yeah. But also, here's my secret. My secret is not changing out of my pajamas. I feel like if you don't change out of your pajama bottoms, then you're pretty comfortable for the entire day. And you can look casually put together when you know that were you to have to stand up to get something and walk away from the screen and people could just see that you're wearing pajama bottoms, you would be exposed. My first issue is, you know, we used to do conference calls or meetings at work, but now, but when people were at home, they were just at home. Now we all have to be on the screen. And I'm always like, like, I want to normalize turning off your camera. Like, you I do. feel pressure to put mine on because yours is on. You clearly <laughs> are in a much better state tonight to have your camera on than I am. Sometime I will be all made up and you will feel bad about having your camera on. But tonight it was me. So that's the first thing. But here's the second thing. I am wondering how you're holding up in your house. And you already talked about putting your pajamas on, but I am in this place, and I saw Sarah Silverman tweet about this yesterday, that like she just feels she can't get enough sleep. So I'm doing this thing too, where it's like nine hours of sleep at night, and I could easily take a four-hour nap at the drop of a hat at any point during the day, and I also could drop right off at night again and sleep for another nine hours. I mean, I know this is a pandemic thing. I'm just trying to figure out, I don't know how to deal with the constant exhaustion and also the constant pajama wearing. And I feel like one probably feeds into the other. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know. So this this my um, my sixteen year old who's a he's a who's a junior in um, in high school and who uh, is zooming into class every single day. Says this. She is very. She says she doesn't feel like she works from home. She said she feels like she lives at work, and so oh, it's yeah. very hard to know when to go to bed. <laughs> When you, what, time, when you at work, what time do you go to bed? I mean, it it is kind of like, that's the other flip side of this is that, you know, it is nighttime. It is dark. It is the eternal darkness of midwinter. And we are all just working all the time. And I, and I, so I understand your exhaustion. And I think, unfortunately, we got a couple more months of this before we're going to get any relief. I just want to remember what it's like to feel awake again and have energy. No matter what I do, I'm just completely exhausted every day. All right. That's, that's neither here nor there. We have a really exciting guest that we are going to share with you guys momentarily. So I hope that you'll stick around here on the ladies room. We are really excited to launch the show and we're really excited about our very first guest that we have joining us now. You know her 
formerly of ESPN, uh, more recently of the Jamel Hill is Unbothered podcast, Stick to Sports with Carrie Champion on Vice. And she writes a lot of great stuff over at The Atlantic. Joining us is Jamel Hill. How's it going, Jamel? How are you guys? Uh, It's a pleasure to be on with both of you. This is amazing. Well, it's really good to see you. And I have to say, every time, I feel like every day on Twitter, I see something else that you're involved in. I see your face somewhere else. You're on MSNBC all the time. This pandemic has been rough on a lot of us, and you seem to be doing more and more things. And I don't know to what extent you're limited about going into studios and stuff, but you're doing so much stuff. You've got to be doing a bulk of it from home. How are you handling all this? Uh, It's a lot. I mean, it it feels kind of weird to talk about just because I know that a lot of people out there have lost their jobs. They're wondering about the state of whatever industry they're in and certainly are in far more volatile situations. And for me, 2020 is the busiest year of my career. And a lot of it is because I am wearing a lot of different hats. I'm writing for The Atlantic. I have my um, my own podcast. I co-host a podcast with Van Lathan, a rewatch uh, podcast where we, you know, rewatch series of The Wire. I have a production company. Like all these other things are like going on. And, you know, what hasn't changed with 2020 is that there is still a huge need for content. And so I've been trying to, you know, sort of balance that against the fact that we're in a pandemic, things aren't the same. Um, you have your own mental well-being you have to worry about, but it's it's extraordinarily, you know, busy. And there are many a days where I am in my office, uh, in my house for, you know, 10, 11 hours because of things I have to tape and do and write and all this stuff. So um, I, I certainly don't want to sound like I'm complaining and I don't want anybody to think that that's where I'm going with this, but it is at times, despite us largely being confined to our homes, it still is a, a little overwhelming. Well, I think you found a moment where you are particularly relevant because your voice and the things that you've been talking about for years now kind of all came to an apex in the summer. And I think you were needed, right? You Because you've always been someone who spoke authentically, even when uh, it did not benefit you in the traditional sense to do that. And and I wanted to kind of ask you about that a bit, because I think sports broadcasting has come to a moment now where rights holders are very interested in making the product as appealing as possible. And broadcasters then are often in a position where discussing a game or a broadcast or a league means putting it in the best light and saying things like, well, you know, the Major League Baseball is doing a great job or the NFL has done a great job with COVID, you know, and they really, none of them have done a great job, let's be honest. <laughs> but I think you were somebody who kind of, you know, we all understand we work in, in sports broadcasting, that there's only so much riffing you can do that is outside of what's acceptable. And I just, I felt like this has put a bit of a fine point on that moment. And yet at the same time, it's been a moment where you've excelled. And just, you know, how is it, where do you find that line? And, and when did you decide you were going to kind of break with what the expectations were? Well, I, I, that's a big reason. What you just talked about is a big reason why I think the first thing that I did after leaving ESPN was, um, well, two things. It was one, uh, narrating uh, the documentary that LeBron James co-executive uh, produced, Shut Up and Dribble, which is all about how athletes over the course of history, Black athletes in particular, have been 
forced into silence because, uh, you know, they dared to remind the country about what it was like to be uh, Black in America, uh, or they have been relegated to just entertainment. And so the entire documentary kind of follows the history of that and how Black athletes have had to buck against that throughout uh, kind of the history of, of sport. And then the next thing I did was, was join the Atlantic. And I love writing. It's my first love. So that was part of it was a selfish desire. The other part was I needed to be able to write about the things that you described in a way that was unfiltered. The Atlantic is not in business with the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball or any of the leagues. And I had just spent 12 years at ESPN where they're in partners with all the leagues that they're trying to cover. And it's a very uh, awkward relationship at times when things like Ray Rice happened or when COVID happens or, you know, a racial protest or that kind of thing. And while no one ever at ESPN said, hey, you can only talk about it in this way or your opinion needs to be this, as the old adage goes, what's understood need not be said, is that you know in your mind there's an invisible line and that there's only so much criticism that you can heap upon a league for what they're doing because part of your job is also to sell the sport that's helping to fund the company that's paying you. So losing that transactional relationship was very freezing, was very freeing for me because I was finally able to write about sports in a far more honest way than I had been writing about and talking about as a byproduct before. And it's really important in this moment of both the racial pandemic and the health pandemic that's happening because there's a lot of performative things that are happening. There's a lot of performative justice that's happening. There's a lot of companies that are putting out flowery statements about caring about lives and caring about the advancement of Black progress. And their attitudes and reflections do not at all indicate any level of seriousness in this area. We have sports leagues that are trying to power through a pandemic, not understanding, frankly, how stupid they're going to look 10 years from now. When we're able to finally, and it may not even be 10 years, it might be closer than that, where we're able to finally judge the ripple effect and the level, the level of consequence that has come with trying to do this for, regardless of what they say, is for money. Because if none of these things made money, they wouldn't be doing it. You know, as we're taping this right now, the Big Ten is going to push through so that Ohio State, as they know, which will give them the best chance to be in the college football playoff, that has barely been able to put together a season, really hasn't by the league rules. They have not been able to play six games. And so I, and I wrote this column for The Atlantic, and I'm like, look, I get it, guys. We all want sports. We all want to watch football. I'm not actively rooting against this thing. But you cannot tell me this was actually worth it. It's 120 games or so that have been canceled. It wasn't worth it, no matter what you say. And like, I, I get that yes, I, I look. Young people are going to always want what they want when they want it. We all are like that to some degree. They're going to want to be able to showcase for the NFL. They're going to want to play. I understand that, but this foolishness that we're seeing is an, an indictment of what is a larger problem in the country, and that we can't make the most minimal of sacrifices. And sports has been my life. Sports has helped me create a livelihood and a future and a present for my family that would not have been possible. So please do not understand 
that I don't get the importance of what sports has meant to my life. But you cannot tell me that it was of dire importance that we'd be able to watch college football or the NFL or the NBA. It, 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 it really wasn't. It, it, it wasn't that important. Not to the point where you need to jeopardize and sacrifice people's health. I mean, the NBA was in a different situation than the WNBA because they put themselves in a bubble. But that's what we're about to get because they're about to be right on the same pathway we've seen everybody else do. Nobody has figured this out outside of a bubble. And so I needed to be able to be honest in this moment to say, you guys see this, right? You do know we look stupid. Okay. I just want to know I'm not the only one that sees this. And even when it comes to the racial conversations that we're having, it's, yeah, I, I'm watching the Monday night game and they do this whole treatment about Colin Kaepernick. And I was like, so we really don't care about hypocrisy right now. And it's like, same league, right? I'm just curious. The NFL has made an icon out of him and yet won't hire him. It is the most bizarre disconnect I've ever seen in my whole life. Yeah, this and this is something I wanted to, to ask Jamel about. And Jane, I'm sure you want to weigh in, weigh in on this as well. So we got the Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year, which was the quote-unquote activist athlete. And over at Deadspin, we wrote about the fact that they put this weird requirement on it that you had to be a champion on the field and off it which to me felt like a really convenient way to exclude Colin Kaepernick from that, to exclude Maya Moore from that. I mean, it seems like giving up your livelihood so that you can free someone from prison is worthy of mention. It feels like Colin Kaepernick, and what he's put in motion. You know, if you're gonna really going to make it the activist athlete, shouldn't Colin Kaepernick be the face on that? And so I was curious as to how you felt about that, particularly because I always say the WNBA is the most progressive league we have in this country. They deserve all the credit for everything that they have put the spotlight on that the I mean, they actually affected the congressional or the senatorial runoff in Georgia. They always are on the right side of whatever it is that they're taking on. And I was, you know, even as a white person seeing Brianna Stewart, who is terrific and great, and I know she does her best to be an amazing ally. But I was like, we couldn't put Renee Montgomery there. We couldn't put Maya Moore on there or a black woman who plays in this league that is overwhelmingly filled with black women who are the ones making the push. I definitely, um, you know, saw a lot of conversation around it. And it's uncomfortable because, as you said, like Brianna Stewart, this is not an indictment of like who she is mm-hmm. as an ally. It is just it touches on a sensitive nerve because black women have seen themselves erased from movements. Just historically, presently, this is what happens. And as you mentioned, you had Maya Moore. And and I I have brought this up many times whenever asked to comment about athlete activism, is reminding people it was the Minnesota Lynx that started a protest before Colin Kaepernick. Okay. That happened that, that right? Twenty fifteen, right. And and people forget that the same police department that walked off their post at their games because they were upset that they had dared to speak out about what happened to Philando Castile. This is the same police department responsible for killing George Floyd. All right. So it comes really full circle and they had a lot to lose in that. And they pissed off a community of cops and they forged ahead. So then, you know, obviously you have Colin Kaepernick and, and so on and so forth. And just as we all know, they do not have as much to, they have far more, excuse me, to lose than anybody else. They don't, they're not as well supported and well funded. They don't make as much money. So when they lose a sponsorship, it hurts. Or the fact that they won't even be considered for one, it hurts. And so what's just as hurtful 
to a league that's predominantly uh, women of color, predominantly black women, is to see their work erased because it presents a picture. And by all intents and purposes, it would have been better for them to just go with LeBron. Honestly, I mean, if they were going to do that, I mean, given, you know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, that checked so many of the boxes and clearly with what he's done with more than a boat and other things like I think that case was pretty unquestioned. But then once they decided to open this up and Naomi Osaka was tremendous and all the things that she did and the conversation she brought. So this is certainly not to diminish Patrick Mahomes or, or whatever. But then I, I think with what the WNBA to have that be Brianna Stewart to a lot of the women like Natasha Cloud and Renee Montgomery, who actively chose not to play so that they could devote more time and energy to social justice. It's hard. I can see very easily why it would be difficult for them to not look at this and say, wait, what? And I know that it's uncomfortable for them to talk about because they don't want to make it seem like they're attacking Brianna Stewart. And I'm certainly, I'm not doing that either, but it is to bring up something that historically and presently is a problem, which is the erasure of Black women from movements when they have very clearly led in a particular area. I mean, I'm glad, honestly, that the conversation's had and that the pressure is being applied. It's good that Sports Illustrated decided to do something like that to acknowledge all of the changes that have taken place. And I think it's good to have a a robust conversation about why these people, um, because representation matters. And um, that's going to lead me to my next question, Jamel, which is about, (laughs) okay, so I'm a bit of a prestige TV junkie. Um, and I've been watching a lot of Showtime lately because it's a pandemic and sometimes watching sports and seeing people with their masks down around their ankles makes me feel bad. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, you've got this deal with, with Kelly Carter, um, for some Showtime stuff and, you know, the tutors kind of watching the Borges, uh, you know, like a little bit of Issa Rae. Um, Michaela Cole. I mean, I just think, you know, the idea of going from somebody who's commenting on things to someone who is making things, what are you looking to create in terms of representation and content? So I I think, you know, the beauty of being a journalist and that being your background is that we understand what makes a good story, or at least we like to think that we do. And we know the importance of storytelling and narrative shaping. And part of the reason I think when you look around why there's such a divisiveness in this country, and frankly, why there is such a willing attraction to ignorance is because we have allowed certain people to frame narratives that just aren't really true. And so both of us really wanted to get into an industry and to get into the kind of content creation where we can start to build certain narratives and also deconstruct others. And it's, been a long-standing problem in Hollywood that they like to build, they're particularly attracted to building trauma television around Black people, <laughs> right? Black people can't just go to the mall, right? We, somebody got to get shot on the way there. Somebody has got to get, <laughs> you know, I mean, somebody has got to come from the hood. It can't just be a regular romance. It's like, you know, somebody got to be in a gang. It's like, can we enjoy some television that does not remind us about the conditioning of Black people. Not that we want to ignore these things. It's just, so some of us are married in happy marriages. Some of us just have normal dysfunctional relationships 
that don't involve crime. Some of us like are doing very normal things. And so it's like 2020 normalized black people, right? That is like, that's what we're trying to do. And what the story that we wanted to tell, and for that matter, that story that we sold, sold to, to Showtime is basically about, you know, friendship. And it's also about the fact that we looked around at some of our friends, I mean, our, our women friends in particular, black women, high earners, either the first in their family or, uh, to either, you know, earn that kind of money or, you know, earn a degree or even in some cases advanced degrees. Statistically, you look at the fact that um, in terms of earning degrees, Black women are the most educated group in the country, uh, seizing and stepping into their own power. We now have a vice president-elect that will be the first Black woman, first South Asian woman. So there's a lot that's going on, you know, for Black women who have frankly run out of apologies. And we've seen the way Black women mobilized during this presidential election. You're looking at Stacey Abrams and you're looking at so many people, Alisa Garza, Latasha Brown, like are out here and what happens is like as you seize that power and it's to some degree a very relatable story is that as you kind of come into your own you recognize you don't change everybody else around you does and so this is sort of a comedy series that reflects that even though you may have attained this success there's a lot of old things that follow you when you have new money and we were just very invested in this idea because it was something we personally could relate to, certain things we saw our friends go to. But the whole point is to build something that's a little different. I mean, I think that is why Michaela Cohen's series has been successful and Issa Rae, you know, Insecure presented a much different picture of a Black millennial life than had been seen on television. She's awkward and, you know, she's having these complicated relationships with her friends and with men. And it's like, as much as the, just as the boys in the hood minister society paid full existence was real, so is this other part. And so we're just trying to bring some balance to the force, as they say in Star Wars speak. <laughs> I cannot wait to see uh, what the We Got Y'all is for your, for your city. Because <laughs> that to me was the the best thing. And, and it, for you guys who haven't seen Insecure, it is like she has this, nonprofit that's designed that's run by white people designed to help young black children super liberal it, super hippie <laughs> it is brilliant it is brilliant and devastating really and i think like showing a mirror like that to people who are white who watch these things like that does more and that goes a long way you know rather than kind of you know trying to explain to somebody sometimes you know what well, I mean? yeah i mean so, it, it totally uh, does like those, look at go ahead oh no i'm sorry also along those same lines you know in that series, it's not just about the complicated relationships that Black people have with white people, but the complicated relationships we have with each other. You know, like one of the funnier bits in Insecure is when, as part of We Got Y'all, when she's placed in the school with the Black principal who's a racist, right? (laughs) And everybody's like, you know, I know people are, I mean, yes, even though Black people are victims of oppression, victims of of racism all, all the time, they can still be bigots. And so exploring that I thought was not only funny, but it's also a reality. And so those that's how storytelling is done. It's like nuance, you know, hello, have you have you seen it? And so I I I hope to create sort of similar kind of things where we're doubling down on on nuance and 
and complication. <laughs> so this is not at all where I intended to go, but I'm just going to ask you, because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and Jane, feel free to weigh in too. <laughs> so, you know, I was a public defender before I got into sports media, and I definitely have feelings um, about, let's say, the vast majority of the police, not in the way that things are done systemically. I have a lot of strong feelings. Yet, I love law and order, especially SVU. And I think all the time, and I see people say this all the time, like this is not an accurate portrayal of the police where they're like these white knights on horses and Olivia Benson's out there like kicking everyone's ass. And every woman who comes in who's been assaulted has like this great experience because she's got Olivia Benson on her side. And I just go, I just wonder like how many shows throughout history, starting with like Dragnet, have like reinforced this idea of the police as white knights riding on horses to save the day. And even though I know that is not the case, I still am hooked on shows like this. Well, you know what? It's so funny you say that because Law & Order, it was nothing for me to get lost in a Law & Order marathon. I think I speak for pretty much most of America by that. (laughs) And by the way, if you didn't know, the guest star always did it. So it's like, (laughs) you know, so it was very easy to get lost in them. But it's funny because it is harder for me to watch now because of everything that we know to be true, but it is a part of our conditioning as Americans. Um, You know, today I had an interesting conversation with two activists about defunding the police as we were talking about this whole um, tension point in the Democratic Party about whether or not defund the police is the appropriate language. Did it, was it costly for them? Mm -hmm. You know, same old uh, argument that we've been having. And and certainly former President Barack Obama threw some more gasoline on this argument when he said that they need a better slogan. Um, I wish it was about a snappy slogan, as he put it, because as we know, you can explain to people in very explicit detail what something means. And if they choose to never even open their mind or if they choose to fundamentally be against the issue, it doesn't matter (laughs) what you call it. Right. Um, And I think on Twitter, I use the example. It's like I I literally listened to Colin Kaepernick explain in detail when his protest first started, why he did it, that he wasn't disrespecting the military and what it was about, only for that narrative to be completely completely about performative patriotism. I saw it happen. I think it, as they say, all right? (laughs) To have people come out and say, if only he would have explained what it was about, then it would have literally did. (laughs) Exactly. At the beginning. It's not like he waited for the narrative to build. He was interviewed about it the first game it was seen, and he said what it was. And he said it a few times after, and then everybody's like, nope, we're going to make it about patriotism. So when people are... As I have learned, when people are committed to misunderstanding, I'm not going to be committed to combating their willful ignorance. I'm not giving them that energy. So I, I say all that to say, you know, with, with the police in, in general, we have mythologized the police in such a way through law and order, through CSI, especially with CSI, where we think the only way somebody could be guilty is if it's DNA evidence, right? Like that's just... You know, that's also thanks to the O.J. Simpson trial, which suddenly everybody is a forensic expert after this. Right. So these shows contribute to a narrative that we're always fed as kids from the time we get through adulthood, which is that the police are the unquestioned moral authority in this country. They're all magnanimous. They're all heroes. They don't lie. They are an exemplary example of the best of this country only for us to do a little more digging and realize that 
they have been allowed to abuse their authority and to be completely unchecked in such a way that they have become, in many cases, a detriment to actual public safety, which is what they're supposed to be doing. And it kind of ties into a larger problem that we have in America. A lot of people here read the brochure and nobody did the advanced reading. The brochure of America is one of the best brochures you ever read. Got all the pretty pictures, all the great landmarks, bullet points about all why this country is so great, democracy, equality, do, 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 do. You start doing a little more reading, you start digging in the textbook, you're like, hold up, this is not what the brochure said. You stay at the hotel, it's like, they said it was a four-bedroom. Why am I in a one-bedroom? That is what America is. And so because we can't get that brochure out of our minds, it's a little bit like when you have the poster of Michael Jackson on your wall or somebody else when you're growing up and you can't get the poster out of your mind because you're afraid to let go of what that poster or what mm. that brochure is because then you start to have to challenge yourself about how you were complicit in letting this happen. And nobody wants to really do that. Nobody wants to think of the police as, as evil or, and I'm not saying they're all evil. They're clearly very good police, but the fact that we have to even to criticize the police have to say there are good police just let you know where we are and how much people have brought into this brochure. So, you know, I, I say all that to say um, that as a country, we need a widespread deconstruction. And the the shameful part about why we're so divisive is because we can't even agree on what is obviously facts about what's happened in our history and frankly, what's happening in our present. I use Germany as an example constantly when discussing how one atones and reconciles when you have a very nasty, ugly history that has killed millions of people as what has happened or what did happen with the Nazis and with the Jews. When you go to Germany, you do not see statues of Nazis. You do not see streets named after Nazis. But in America, and to me, this is the perfect encapsulation of where we are. John Lewis, who is no longer with us, uh, one of the greatest uh, civil rights leaders that we've ever known, had his head cracked open as he and others fought for voting rights. They walked and marched and protested on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Most people don't know who Edmund Pettus is. He was a notorious racist who was a KKK leader. The bridge still stands. His name is still on it. And John Lewis is dead. And we're still fighting for voting access for Black people. That says everything about America. We build monuments to our racism. That's what we do because we need to believe the brochure. And I just wish we would get to a point where we would just shred that brochure and say, fuck this brochure and let's just go with actually there as opposed to sort of making up what makes us feel better along the way. So go ahead, Jane. I was just going to say, that's why you're so good. You know, just what you've said there, I think just really encapsulates a lot. I really do believe in this country. And the part of the reason that I do is because I watched a lot of Sesame Street as a kid. And I bought it all, you know, I really did. I believed that we were all equal and I believed everything that was there. And you, boy, when you, you know, when you get a little bit older, you realize that not everybody believes that. And really not everybody wants to believe that. And a lot of people actually find it kind of offensive that, um, that that is out there. So, you know, I, I just, I think, you know, it's really important um, what you just said and that I, I think it's important to keep striving for that idea of what America is and that it brings everybody in, but also to recognize we are not there yet. We are a long way off and we need to keep working. 
Yeah, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who, as you all know, is the, the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winner, who was uh, behind the 1619 Project, which was extraordinary, and also has been challenged by quite a few people because they just do not want to believe when slavery happened. I'm like, what are we doing here? Or they just don't like her premise of saying that the preservation of slavery was far more important than what we have allowed people to believe. And it's kind of a clear it was important. It was how we became a superpower in this world. But she said something to me when I did a podcast with her that really has stayed with me. And what she said was that Black people are the most inconvenient people for this country because we not only bought into the brochure, we intend to hold you to it, which is what you said in this document, all men are created equal. Where's the equality? And we keep reminding this country of how they're not living up to what they say they are. And that offends people. That makes people angry. It makes them hostile. It's why 70 million people voted for Donald Trump, because they are reminded of what they aren't and about what they really stand for. And it's hard for them to face. And so we do have to keep striving for it. And it's a painful, slow progress. But history teaches us that we will get there. It's just the road that we take is just going to be full of a lot of landmines and agony. And that will be a lot, you know, to it is as much as we're going through as a nation. While I think if Martin Luther King Jr. were alive, he'd be disappointed with a lot of it. And that we're still having a lot of the same conversations that he preached about when he gave his, I have a dream speech or what he wrote about in letters in a Birmingham jail and many of his other speeches. I think there's also aspects that he would be very proud of that we fought and fought uh, together. And so it just is going to require work and the work is lifelong. It's not to be done in pockets, not to be done because we're in a pandemic and then we forget about it or because we unfortunately see somebody black being murdered by a police officer on video. It is constant work that has to be done brick by brick and it's painful labor. But the whole point is at the end of the day, we got to feel good about the foundation that the project is built on. You know, Jamal, I bringing up Nicole Hannah Jones is is perfect for where I wanted to go. Um, I, you know, I I once heard you described by someone who went to college with you, and I won't embarrass you by saying their name, but she was. This person said she is the most intelligent person I've ever known. I know you're really? a writer. Yes, I know you read a ton. I know that you, you have a lot of friends. I'm gonna just yeah. say that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I mean, I know that you are a person who studies history and who reads all the time. And I think that for those of us that, especially those of us who are white, that's been real. I mean, for me, it's been since I picked up Howard Zinn's People's History of America and was like, wow, that's not what they told me in school. So like things like the 1619 podcast and stuff have been really instrumental in sort of changing the way that I look at the world. And I know that I see you put things on Twitter and I see Nicole Hannah-Jones put things on Twitter. And, you know, I'll open up Twitter and it's like, oh, trending topic, Jamel Hill. And I'm like, oh, no, (laughs) because I'm like, I know you're right in what you're saying. And I'm like, no, she's right. That's exactly what happened in history. But like I was talking to Jane before you got here and before we started recording, like I am a person who online harassment for me is just absolutely horrible. I cannot. it, It really upsets me. I'm a really sensitive person. I keep working on it. But I think one day if I opened Twitter and I got the kind of abuse that you get from as many people as you get, I would probably pass out. 
And I remember texting you one time, maybe like the second time I saw your name up there. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. This is happening to you. And you were like, oh, this is like a Tuesday for me. So (laughs) (laughs) the question I guess is for all the women out there who are working in male dominated industries or who just happen to have committed the cardinal sin of being a woman with an opinion on the internet, how do you go about getting to a point where you are unbothered by most of it? You probably could have just stopped it at uh, just being a woman. Like, you don't even need an <laughs> true, to get harassed on social media. I mean, what I would say to them is don't look at me and think that because you're not that or because you may not be as unbothered as as I am about it, that there's something wrong with you. It's something wrong with the people who do it. And so I've had many young women uh, especially those coming up in this profession who have asked me, like, what can they do to handle it better? And I, I told them I'm really uncomfortable giving you advice about it because I feel like me trying to coach you to ignore something that's so hateful is me also giving license and an excuse to the people that do it. So I'm going to actually give the opposite advice and say, be sensitive about it. Be upset about it just because I'm 7,000 years old and I'm, you know, not <laughs> necessarily as upset about it. Part of it too, I think I have the benefit of not growing up on social media either, is that we all can remember a time where this didn't exist. And so, um, you know, with that being said, I think it's easy for me to create some di- distance and to see it as just like, eh, you know, whatever. Also helps that I've been getting hate mail since I was in college, you know, when they were snail mailing it and I was getting called racial slurs through snail mail, which then became emails. Like I've literally seen every phase of technology of being called, you know, a racial slur or being told to go back to the kitchen or whatever. So it's like, this is just the latest method. You know what I mean? I'm sure if I had a telegram, you know what I'm saying? I'm (laughs) I'm sure if I'd have been born, uh, you know, in the dinosaur time, it'd have been like over a stone tablet. They'd have been actually, <laughs> right? So, um, so I, so I think that really I'd prefer to put pressure on the people not to do it. And I think the more that they can see how people are affected by it, I like to think that they, it registers in them that this is not, um, this is not normal behavior. Their words and their actions do have an impact. And that they have to, um, you know, that they have to be held to account. So, yeah, my advice is is, is not to. I mean, you, I don't think you, there's some of it that you don't want to, you don't want to lose the humanity of this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the more we become desensitized to it and used to it, we actually start to not realize the mental toll that it takes. And I, I'm, I think I'm okay if there are women who live in that moment. I'm not happy, Julie, that you're upset by it, but I'm happy that you still possess the capacity to be upset, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. All right, Jamal Hill, we are so grateful that you were here for our very first episode. I can't imagine anyone who have been better to kick this uh, podcast off with. Um, Of course, you can follow Jamal on Twitter. She's got her hands in everything these days. She writes for The Atlantic. She has her own podcast. She has another podcast. She's on Stick to Sports on Vice, which is terrific, by the way. Thank you. Um, so we're just really thrilled that you were able to give us time. And I don't know how many people know this about Jamal, but like Jane and I talk about this all the time that I don't think you've ever said no for anything that I've ever asked you to do. And Jane says the oh. same thing. 
And you are so ridiculously generous with your time with people. And I, I, I know you get a lot of bad stuff on social media. So I just want to put that out there into the universe that you are one of the more generous people in this industry. And I know that Jane and I both really appreciate it. hundred well, percent. I thank I thank you ladies for saying that. Um, I'm equally big fans of yours and it makes it easy to commune with people. I have an automatic respect for uh, so to me, the easiest thing I could do is give you my time, particularly since, um, you know, you all are out here fighting the good fight. Jane is shaping young minds. <laughs> yeah, they'll, totally they'll, uh, they'll be sorry for that. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> make this place a little tad bit better. And, and Julie, um, I am just so encouraged and impressed by your strength because I mean, I'm happy you said that about the hate I get, but I've seen what you get and it is horrible. And so the fact that you are still willing to hang in there and make your point, be a voice um, and bring awareness to some very important issues and get people to think, uh, I, I think that says more about you than I think you're giving yourself credit for. So while I appreciate uh, the kind words that you said, I can easily turn all of that back around on you guys and say it goes in both directions for sure. <laughs> well, we'll all pay it forward. How about that? Next generation. Exactly. That sounds great. Best of luck with everything you've got your hands in right now. We'll be watching to see what you do next. All right. Anytime guys. Thank you. Wow, Jane, I feel like that was a pretty good interview to start the podcast off with. She's so terrific about everything. I mean, honestly, you know all you need to about how much her voice is required. Yeah. In, not just, not only in this moment, but particularly in this moment. I mean, she has so much context for the things that she says. I, you know, I, I mean, just listening to her, I feel like I've heard her speak a thousand times. And every time I hear her, I learn something new. Yeah, I, I agree. And then, and she does a great job, I think, of making concepts that are particularly difficult for white people and making them extremely understandable and relatable. And I wish that she got more credit for that. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask her, but I got sidetracked by the SVU thing, because I'm just sitting here like, I really shouldn't watch SVU anymore. But I love SVU and I don't want to give it up. But I was just, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, when she came out and said, President Trump is a white supremacist and everybody clutched their pearls and acted like this was something that, you know, was so ridiculous. And, and everybody who's, I mean, anyone with a brain in their head knew that it was true and that she, what she was saying was right. The evidence was all over in front of us. And she got such garbage and blowback for it. And now it is something that is just pretty much accepted by a large swath of America. And I just wonder, and I know if you asked her, do you feel vindicated? She would say absolutely not because she's not that kind of person. But I wonder if she feels, and I hope she feels at least some satisfaction that the conversation is finally taking place on the scale that it always needed to. And, you know, I, I keep telling my kids, you know, when history looks back and we look back on who really made a difference in this movement, they're going to talk about Colin Kaepernick. They're going to talk about Jamel Hill. They're going to talk about the people that were on the right side from day one, you know? Yeah. So I, I hope that she has a sense of that. I'm pretty sure she does, but. I, th I think she'd say that she wishes she hadn't been right, you know, that yeah. it would have been easier for the entire world had she been wrong. But just, you know, it's very true that saying someone's a white supremacist doesn't make it so. But refusing to say that someone is a white supremacist also doesn't make it so. Mm -hmm. And I think that was where everybody was 
when she initially made that tweet was that everybody was like, well, if we just, you know, kind of close our eyes or put our blinders on, then he's not, he's not going to be who he is. Um, and he is, he's, he was, and he is. And I think, you know, she was, you know, kind of breaking through that, that bubble of, of what it is you're allowed to say when you work for a rights holder that is, was under fire by the president of the United States at that moment, because of the way that they were covering Colin Kaepernick's protest against police violence and in the issue around that and the get that son of a bitch off the field. She refused to play the game uh, and ignore what was happening. And, and I think that's, you know, that's a big thing for people. When you hire people of color, when you hire women, you don't just get to have them so that they uh, make a nice postcard or whatever. You, you hire them because of who they are. They get to bring their whole selves to the office, just like, you know, white men have been able to for the last 200 years. And, and I, they, you know, and ESPN was clearly not willing to support her beyond who she was talking about the games. And I think they were exposed for that, honestly. And I think she, um, you know, was vindicated by history. You know, and it's really interesting. And, and if, if you don't want this, if you don't want this, then we'll just cut it out later and pretend it never happened. But I remember several years ago, you and I were having a conversation um, about domestic violence in sports. And you were writing about it. I was writing about it. And I remember you saying, you know, someone saying to you that, you know, you're not going to be in the industry very long if you keep this up. And it wasn't that much longer that you were out at ESPN. I was out at my radio station. And I know that, you know, I was frequently um, butting heads with management where I was for the same reason. You know, the Cubs, we were the flagship station of the Chicago Cubs. Nobody ever told me you're not allowed to say this about the Cubs, but Everybody there apparently got the memo about me because when the Addison Russell stuff happened, I had definite, and if you don't know about Addison Russell, he was suspended for domestic violence. Um, you know, I talked about it very freely and openly and um, didn't go over well with the Cubs who reached out to my manager and, and you know, and suddenly I was in all kinds of trouble. I don't know how, how many people realize that are just casual sports fans, how much courage it takes for Jamel to come out and have done what she did. Um, and, and that goes for everyone who has spoken out, you know, against their own interests in this space, because sports media is a space where we watch people lose their jobs every day. We watch newsrooms being gutted every day. We watch layoffs and people who are still sort of sticking their neck out, knowing that this is stuff that could happen to them at any minute, really, truly have my respect. And, and obviously, Jamel is one of those people. And you're one of those people. Oh, thank you. Well, and that is why I hope that Jamel makes all the money in the universe yeah. and it all comes to her. Showtime deals, Vice, The Atlantic. I hope they're all backing up the Brinks truck to be able to have her sign a contract for them. And, you know, this is like, I, you see this happen so much though, Julie, where people don't get rewarded. They lose their jobs. They're out of the industry, whatever. Jamel is somebody, this has happened and all of the rewards are coming her way. And I couldn't be happier because, you know, she really was, she was the canary in the coal mine for us mm -hmm. in sports in a lot of ways and culturally. And I just think, you know, to see someone get rewarded for that thankless jobs too often, we see the whistleblowers lose their job. Alexander Vindman's out, you know, after saying, don't worry, dad, I'm not going to get in, you know, I'm not going to lose anything for, for speaking the truth. Well, you do lose for speaking the truth. You lose every single day for speaking the truth. So to see Jamel Hill, speak the truth and be rewarded makes me very happy. Yeah. And in an industry where so many people are pigeonholed, like if you know about sport, I mean, sport, there's no issue that doesn't touch sports, right? I mean, whether it's economics, whether it's 
you know, violence against women, whether it's um, taxes and, you know, antitrust law, like whatever, like every single issue that we have touches sports. And I think that so often people are like, and I had someone just say to me one time, a person in this industry, by the way, oh, it's just for a sports radio show. And I was like, hey, you know, we talk about it on my sports radio show, you know, and I was like all offended. But it's great to see someone be able to transition from sports into so many other things and be recognized for the intelligent person that she is and the creative person that she is, and, and not just being pigeonholed to someone who knows only about sports. And, and I think that when it comes to men and women, that may be one place where women sort of has the advantage because nobody thinks that we're like stupid jocks that only know about sports because they assume we don't know about sports. So it's like you've got as good a chance as knowing about, you know, politics or anything else, history, as you do about sports. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that it, it, there, there are so many different things that you have to, to balance when you're in this industry. It's not just about what you know when you're coming in as an outsider and you're going to stake your claim here. You really do have to work twice as hard. And she's somebody who has. And, and now we get to see what else she gets to do. And I'm so glad that we were able to have her uh, on this episode of the podcast, because again, I learned a ton. Yeah, me too. Every time she's, she talks. And this has been a really great first episode. I had a ton of fun. Um, I'm really looking forward to doing the next one. Me too. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, this is a dead spin podcast. And in the trailer, we did promise some bathroom humor. So I feel like at some point we're going to have to deliver on that. So all you have to do is say Rudy Giuliani. This <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. And I saw today that Jenna Ellis has COVID too. I mean, it's kind of amazing. I don't, I am anti-COVID, even if it happens to people Me who too. are not protecting themselves adequately with masks. 100%. I, yeah. But you have to sort of marvel at how viral this thing is. That it is just ripped through the entire Republican establishment. Indoors, maskless, you know, not within six feet. You're leaning over to touch the person next to you to tell them to pipe down. <laughs> you know, like there, there are a lot of things that happened in that sequence that were, were, you know, could go into a study about how the virus transmits. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a subject for another time. Thanks to everyone who joined us for this episode of the Ladies Room Sports Podcast. She's Jane McManus. I'm Julie DeCaro. We will be back with you guys next week. Make sure you check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, what else? iHeartRadio. What else is out there? Wherever you get your podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, you can get this show. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. We'll see you guys next week.